0: All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of September 4th from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And inevitably, we're going to be continuing the conversation about Afghanistan this evening. And I'm going to start by responding to some uh, really annoying online propaganda that I am seeing. Now, those of you who, like me, are masochistic enough to be on Facebook will undoubtedly have seen the meme, as they are called, which has been, uh, you know, resurrected. It's been going around for years, but it's been getting a lot of play in the past uh, couple of weeks since the Taliban took Kabul, <clears throat> which shows President Ronald Reagan meeting below a uh, portrait of George Washington, presumably in the White House with a a group of Afghan men with beards and turbans and traditional garb. And on top it says, President Ronald Reagan's meeting with the Taliban at the White House in 1985. And below, it says, quote, these gentlemen are the moral equivalents of America's founding fathers, end quote, Ronald Reagan, 1985. Now, This is a really impressive bit of distortion, because it's actually wrong multiple ways. For starters, it's kind of impossible that Reagan met with the Taliban in 1985, because the Taliban didn't exist in 1985. Okay, that's number one. And uh, number two, that quote, these gentlemen are the moral equivalents of America's founding fathers, was not said about the... Afghan rebels that the U.S. in fact was backing at the time, the Mujahideen, it was actually said about the Nicaraguan rebels that the U.S. was backing at the same time, the Contras. If you don't believe me, Google it, as the catchphrase goes. Well, I did, because I remembered, and I knew that I was remembering correctly, and indeed my Googling brought back a story from the New York Times, March 2nd, 1985. Reagan terms Nicaraguan rebels, quote, moral moral equal of founding fathers, end quote. Now, anybody who can provide any documentation that Reagan said that about the the Afghan rebels, much less Fataliban, which didn't even exist back then, but just any Afghan rebels, and I will publicly eat crow on this podcast. I can, can, with 100% confidence, make that offer. Make that challenge to you, the listeners, because I know I was paying attention at the time back in the 1980s, and I know that Reagan made that quip about the Nicaraguan Contras, not about the Afghan Mujahideen. Now, yeah, the US was backing both the Nicaraguan Contras and the Afghan Mujahideen, but that does not give you, you know, the right to falsify history and to falsify quotes. And it doesn't give you the right to conflate the Mujahideen with the Taliban, which did not exist back then. This is what I hate about Facebook. We're all being so dumbed down. And, you know, you call it out, and people say, um, what do you expect? It's just Facebook. And yet we all live on Facebook, and we all get, you know, most of our information, if you can mm, actually... Consider it information, disinformation or misinformation, as the case may be, from Facebook. It's so dystopian. It's so out of whack. I am really tired of seeing oversimplified bullshit about what happened in Afghanistan in the 1980s from ill-informed conspiracy theorists. Over and over again, I hear that the CIA created the Taliban and or al-Qaeda to fight the Soviets in the 80s, two organizations which did not even exist then. All right, now I'm going to briefly go over what actually happened. And uh, what I'm about to tell you is all objective fact, which is easily documented. And not opinion, but fact, in 1979 the Soviets massively intervened in Afghanistan to back up their brutal and unpopular client regime there, which had come to power in a coup d'etat the year before. Ethnic and sectarian Islamist militia spontaneously mobilized across the country to resist the Soviets. They had no overall command, but were collectively known as the Mujahideen. Now, I am emphasizing that because nobody seems to remember this name today, the Mujahideen. They were not created by the CIA, although the CIA began massively funding them fairly immediately. This actually started just before the Soviet intervention under President Carter, as Carter's national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, would famously later boast but it really took off under Reagan. Pakistan and Saudi Arabia also began backing the Mujahideen, and the Saudis cr- recruited Arab volunteers to join them, who were known as the Arab Mujahideen. The CIA aid, totaling some $2 billion over the course of the next several years, was funneled through Pakistan's secret police, the Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate, or ISID. In 1984, Sorai Playboy millionaire turned fundamentalist, Osama bin Laden, arrived in Pakistan to coordinate the Arab volunteers. He established an organization known as the Maktab al-Kidmat, or Services Center, or the MAK, M-A-K, based in Peshawar, the Pakistani city close to the Khyber Pass that leads across the mountains into Afghanistan. The MAC served as a clearinghouse for Mujahideen volunteers from the Arab world who were armed, briefed, indoctrinated, and dispatched to the front. CIA money may or may not have reached the MAC through ESEID. Osama had plenty of his own money. Nothing suggests that the CIA either created or directed the MAC. And in any case, the MAC was not a military organization Strictly speaking, it didn't fight, but prepared volunteers. In 1989, the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan, the Berlin Wall came down, and the CIA dramatically cut aid to the Mujahideen. At this time, the MAC was reconstituted as Al-Qaeda, just as the CIA was cutting the Mujahideen loose. Osama returned to Saudi Arabia and later spent time in Sudan building an international network for his new organization. Operation Desert Storm in 1991 and the stationing of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia is what finally turned him against the U.S. and the Saudi regime. In 1992, the Mujahideen finally drove out the Russian-backed Afghan regime and took Kabul in stating Burhanuddin Rabbani as the country's new leader. But the Mujahideen factions began to fight among each other, and war continued. In 1994, please note the date, 1994, the Taliban were formed in Pakistan, recruiting from the massive Afghan refugee camps there. They prepared an invasion of Afghanistan, pledging to restore order. E-Seed, the Pakistani intelligence agency, was definitely backing the Taliban. There are claims that the CIA was too, but they have never been corroborated, and if so, it was a deep cover operation and nowhere near the level of the program in support of the Mujahideen a decade earlier. In 1996, the Taliban took Kabul. Rabani retreated to the north and led an anti-Taliban resistance movement, the Northern Alliance. Bin Laden returned to Afghanistan with his core, al-Qaeda crew, sheltered by the Taliban regime. In 2001, 9-11 happened. The U.S. invaded and started backing their Northern Alliance, which had previously been backed by Russia. After 9-11, they were both backing them. And finally uh, drove the Taliban from power. The U.S. and the Northern Alliance, now serving as its proxies, drove the Taliban from power and installed Hamid Karzai, as president. His military commanders were former Northern Alliance warlords and heroes of the Mujahideen. And uh, these warlords continued to uh, hold real power across much of Afghanistan, right on through the Taliban re-seizure of the country, which we just witnessed. And for an excellent and factual, not garbled and speculative, History, up through just before 9-11, I suggest the following book, Taliban, Militant Islam, Oil and Fundamentalism in Central Asia by Ahmed Rashid, Yale University Press, 2000. Now, please stop spreading bullshit. Thank you. <laughs> All right, now, um, I'm not arguing that there was no continuity between the Mujahideen and the Taliban, because, of course, there was... The current leader of the Taliban, Mullah Baradar, is a veteran Mujahideen fighter from back in the 80s, when he was a young man, and there were Mujahideen commanders who later wound up allied with the Taliban, such as Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, and basically it came down to kind of an ethnic conflict in the end, where uh, the Taliban and their allies, like Hekmatyar, had a base among the Pashtuns in the south and the Northern Alliance among the uh, Tajiks and Dari and Uzbeks in the north. And certainly the Mujahideen were a brutal and reactionary lot. But the principal commanders of the Mujahideen, the most powerful ones who actually took power in 1992, were principally Tajiks and the enemies of the Taliban, who would later go on to form the Northern Alliance. And many then you know became the the warlords which have been collaborating with the u s for the past twenty years, so yeah, there was a degree of continuity between the Mujahideen and the Taliban, but a greater degree of continuity between the uh, northern alliance and the and the Mujahideen and the northern alliance, which fought the taliban and yeah the u s kind of um initiated this whole trajectory by backing reactionary fundamentalists, but sloppy and revisionist overstatement does not help to make your case. All right, so let's take stock of this history and what it all means. All right, on one hand, it is certainly true that amid the ongoing insurgency, counterinsurgency, and warlordism over the past 20 years, political space did in fact open in Afghanistan and advances were in fact made for the dignity and security of women and persecuted minorities like the Hazara. Limited but real advances. But now there is a sense that all that progress was, to coin a phrase, borrowed from the future. And now that future is arriving, and the karmic debt is coming due. That is to say, There was an underlying dystopian dynamic to the imposition of a degree of secularism under imperial auspices, which was all the while eating away at the progress. And there is definitely a sense of um, the so-called spiral of history to all of this. The Soviets imposed a brutal order in the name of secularism back in the 1980s, And the U.S. backed the Islamist Mujahideen. The Mujahideen took power, and the even more reactionary Taliban emerged to oppose them. The U.S. invaded and occupied the country in the name of secularism, fighting a Taliban insurgency. Now, the even more reactionary ISIS has emerged to oppose the Taliban. And I think that's what's given the U.S. the imperative to make peace, as it is called, with the Taliban. The Taliban agreed not to harbor al-Qaeda or anyone who would attack the West, and the U.S. threw overboard the women and minorities of Afghanistan who had served as such convenient propaganda when the U.S. invaded, posing as liberators back in 2001. And now the Taliban are actually being groomed as proxies by the U.S. to beat back ISIS and fuck the people of Afghanistan and secularism and human rights and democracy. And all those phrases which were, you know, bandied about by, um, the W. Bush administration and the neocons 20 years ago when this misadventure all began. All right, now I mentioned uh, in an earlier podcast that I've been waiting for a statement of the, uh, from the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, (RAWA), which has been, you know, I first became aware of them back in 2001, or maybe even earlier, and they've been, you know, the uh, the one really consistent, intransigent, secular, feminist, progressive, anti-fundamentalist Afghan voice, which opposes all of the imperialist powers, all of the warlords, and all of the fundamentalists of any stripe. And finally, they uh, they did release a statement on their website. RAWA responds to the Taliban takeover, August twenty-first, in which a, uh, a RAWA spokesperson, actually speaking in the name of the organization, not named as an individual, is interviewed by Sonali Kolhatkar of the Afghan Women's Mission, and states that the. Uh, the United States was not defeated by its creatures, quote-unquote, meaning the Taliban, but left due to its own multifold internal crisis. They said that uh, it's a joke to say that values like women's rights, democracy, nation-building, etc., all in quotation marks, were a part of uh, U.S., NATO aims in Afghanistan. They say that the U.S. envoy, Zalmay Khalizad is highly hated among Afghan people due to his treacherous role in bringing the Taliban to power, end quote. And they uh, accuse the Western corporate media of trying to sugarcoat the brutal Taliban, quote, unquote. All right, now, this may be a little bit overstated. I'm not entirely sure that it's fair to call the Taliban... <laughs> creatures of the U.S., that is to say creations of the U.S., but uh, we at Counter Vortex have maintained from, uh, from the start that a central imperative of the U.S. <clears throat> peace deal with the Taliban has been to groom them, to groom the Taliban to fight ISIS, which just makes it all the more perverse and Orwellian that there are some sectors of the you know so-called anti-imperialist left that have actually been hailing the Taliban as liberators. The ultra-reactionary Stalinist faction, the Workers' World Party, which continues to have entirely too much influence in the anti-imperialist left, runs a piece on their website by their uh, core cadre member, Sarah Flounders, entitled, Afghanistan Collapse, An Epic Failure of U.S. Aggression which is calling for sanctions to be lifted against the Taliban and uh, taking open glee in the um, diplomatic overtures which are going on between the Taliban and Russia and China, the imperial rivals of the United States. And this gets back to, you know, once again, what I was talking about uh, the last time I was discussing Afghanistan on the podcast about, you know, the grooming of factions by great powers, which have been playing... uh, you know the so-called great game or the global chessboard you know in afghanistan going all the way back to the um the anglo-afghan wars of the 19th and 20th centuries which basically pitted britain against russia during the cold war the us kind of stepped into the uh, shoes of britain but you know it just amazes me how even now that russia is 100% capitalist more than a generation after the collapse of the soviet union So much of the so-called left is just slavishly following the Moscow line. I mean, if that was a grave error back in the Cold War, at least there was some internal logic to it. Today, it makes considerably less sense, unless you think that it's your job to support anybody who opposes the United States. In which case, please stop pretending that it has anything to do with socialism, thank you it's just campism pure and simple without even the bogus veneer of socialism that it had back in the cold war so uh you know i'm taking my uh my wayback machine in my head i'm taking my my, my tardis <laughs> through through my own memory cells back to um 1979 1980 well, I was just getting politicized when the war in Afghanistan, which has been going on continuously since then, or, or a series of wars in Afghanistan, which began at that time and going on continuously since then, were just getting started. And in fact, it was uh, you know the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, that and the Iran hostage crisis, which prompted um, Jimmy Carter on the way out to uh, bring back draft registration after, you know, he had come into office four years earlier declaring a uh, an amnesty for uh, Vietnam-era draft evaders, and he left office bringing back registration for the draft. Not the draft itself, but registration. You turn 18, you have, at that time you had to go to the post office and register. Now I guess you can do it online. So, you know, I was in that first crop of 18-year-olds who had to register for the draft, and that was like the key thing which got me politicized and turned me into an anti-war activist. And I remember at, uh, you know, an early anti-war rally that I went to down in Washington, D.C., you know, these big choreographed affairs, which actually, you know, they meant something back in the 60s. They mean, they meant considerably less in this period, in the 80s. <clears throat> they were held, uh, you know, just about once a year around one issue or another, demanding nuclear disarmament or um, against U.S. intervention in Central America, military aid to the junta in El Salvador, etc. So, I don't even remember exactly what the issue was, but a rally that I went to, a big, you know, big mass demonstration in Washington, D.C., that I went to probably in 1980 or 1981, there was a a big banner being held aloft by one of the um, Stalinist or Trotskyist factions out there. I believe it was um, the Spartacist League. Not sure of that. I am sure of what it actually said. Hail Red Army in Afghanistan. (laughs) It's like open support for the Soviet military intervention in Afghanistan, because they were, you know, defending secularism and um, fighting Islamic fundamentalists. All right, and now we fast forward 40 years. My God, it's really been 40 years. And there are, you know, sectors of the so-called anti-imperialist left, which are actually joining with the White House in taking a position of, ah, the Taliban isn't that bad after all. I mean, how Orwellian does it get? <laughs> how Orwellian does it get? I mean, all I can say is, you just get the fuck out of here. Boggles the mind. All right, so uh, again, I want to try to end on a positive note here. What's the positive alternative? What's, you know, an actual legitimate and helpful way for progressives to respond to this absolutely disastrous situation. All right, now that's a difficult question. It's a lot easier for me to throw throw tomatoes. And believe me, the people I'm throwing tomatoes at deserve those tomatoes. So I make no apology for throwing the tomatoes. But you know, the question of what can we actually do to have some kind of a, uh, you know, however slight positive impact on the situation. All right, for starters, support Rawai. Support the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan. Go to their website, rawa.org. R-a-w-a.org. Read their updates. Click on the link on their page, Rawa in Media. That's the one which is updated the most frequently, and that's where the uh, the statement that I just read, excerpts from Rawa response to Taliban takeover, was posted about two weeks ago now. Support Sonali Kolhatkar's group, the Afghan Women's Mission, online at afghanwomensmission.org without the apostrophe. These are the people that urgently need our solidarity. Some of them are in exile. Some of them are working on the ground among the refugees in Pakistan, whose ranks will certainly be growing now. And some of them, or at least people they're in touch with, are feminists and secularists and progressives who have stayed behind in Afghanistan to try to keep alive what civil space and internal civil resistance to the consolidating Taliban dictatorship that they can. Now, how to organize solidarity for them in the extremely daunting situation they face is no easy question, but solidarity begins with at least knowing who they are. And the last thing I want to point out in terms of directing you to links are a piece that I just ran on our own website, countervortex.org. Afghan women who are speaking out by journalist Robin Huang, who has actually spent time on the ground in Afghanistan it's a piece which uh, originally appeared in the uh, New Humanitarian website, in which uh, Robin Wong speaks with Pashtana Durrani and Fahima Ramati, two women in Kandahar who head community organizations and have chosen to remain in Afghanistan and continue speaking out. Durrani uh, founded Learn, a... Uh, non-governmental organization focused on education and health care for women and girls. Ramati is a doctor and activist who runs the Gila Charity Foundation, whose work included helping families displaced during the Taliban siege of Kandahar this past July. Important piece of journalism, please check it out. Afghan Women Who are Speaking Out by journalist Robin Huang of the New Humanitarian, also appearing on countervortex.org. Say their names, Pashtana Durrani and Fahima Ramati. Solidarity begins with at least knowing who they are, and rooting for them rather than imperial powers, whether of the West or the East, and viewing the people of Afghanistan as human beings and not pawns on the global chessboard, or fodder for cheap propaganda. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Please check us out online at countervortex.org. If you support our work, put your money where your mouth is. I'm asking just a dollar per podcast minimum on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash countervortex. We currently have 27 patrons If you support this ultra-dissident, cranky, intransigent voice, please become number 28. Join the counter-vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.